Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's just after dawn in the city of Washington, in the District of Columbia. The sun peaks over the horizon reflecting off the placid waters of the Tiber Creek, a tributary of the Potomac. On the bank, a man prepares for a swim, removing his hat, his pocket watch, his jacket and waistcoat, handing them to his man-in-waiting, a valet by his side. Finally, stripped of his underclothing and stockings, the swimmer, now stark naked, wades happily into the water and immerses himself, taking his first strokes into the slow-moving current. I follow this practice for exercise, for health, for cleanliness, and for pleasure, the man would write in his journal, explaining his routine as part of a whole morning regimen. I have found it invariably conducive to health, and never experienced from it the slightest inconvenience. It is a simple but remarkable statement, considering this man, this swimmer, is the President of the United States, our sixth President, John Quincy Adams, son of our second, John Adams of Massachusetts who every morning he is fit to do so can be found down here at the river's edge, skinny dipping, with barely a concern for public perception. A new civilization had come. A new spirit had arisen on this side of the Atlantic, more advanced and more developed in its regards for the rights of the individual than that which characterized the old world. Life in a new and open country had aspirations which could not be realized in any subordinate position. A separate establishment was ultimately inevitable. It had been decreed by the very laws of human nature, man everywhere as an unconquerable desire to be the master of his own destiny. Hello, folks. It's American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman, your humble host. Thanks for listening. Let's talk about our presidents. We do it every two weeks, each presidency in chronological order. Today is, let's see, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, our sixth chief executive serving from 1825 to 1829, taking office at the age of 58 after an accomplished list of legal and political employments. A dignified, though difficult man, classically educated, deeply cultivated, spoke several languages, taught at Harvard, much respected among his peers while suffering no fools. Adams was inaugurated to the highest office in the land on March 4, 1825. 
our first ever son of a former president, a founding father, John Adams. Wouldn't be for another 176 years until George W. Bush took office in 2001 after his dad, George H.W. Bush. And rather like George W., when you stop and consider it, John Adams would attempt to redeem his father, who had lost the presidency after one term. In just a moment, we'll hear how all that went down. Adams spent a lot of his career prior to the presidency overseas in various diplomatic posts. England, the Netherlands, Prussia, and in the years leading up to the War of 1812, he was James Madison's minister to Russia. He would work on the team negotiating the Treaty of Ghent, ending that second conflict with Great Britain in 1814. In the following presidency of James Monroe, John Quincy was his Secretary of State. A fateful eight years followed in which Adams worked assiduously acquiring the lands of Florida from Spain and then was the driving force behind what became known as the Monroe Doctrine the presidential policy asserting us domain in the Americas and resistance to further colonization by European powers. It created the sphere of influence we still strongly assert in this part of the globe, arguably sets us on the path to eventual global superpower status, whatever you may think of that. John Quincy Adams was the beginning of an America which thought and operated far beyond its own borders. But surprisingly, when Adams took office after Monroe, he had domestic matters mainly on his mind. And to explain this complicated, complex, and sophisticated man and his four years as president is Professor Christopher J. Young from Indiana University Northwest, where he teaches early American history, specializing in the political culture of the American Revolutionary Era. Professor Young, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you back. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. 1825, at the time of John Quincy Adams' assumption of the office, where are we at in America? We're 50 years old, 1826, the next year. What are the general themes at work in the nation at this time? Yeah, 1825 is really this transitional period. And John Quincy Adams really sort of epitomized this transition. He was truly his father's son and <laughs> that he had many characteristics of his father. He was really shaped, like many people of his generation, by the American Revolution. But unlike them, he was truly engaged in many of these activities. So he participated with his father when his dad was in Europe, negotiating funds for the war, negotiating an ending to the war. And John Quincy Adams was part of all that. And so in many ways, he was like our last founding father. Mm. It's interesting because in many ways, he's part of this new generation, the second generation, as historian H.W. Brands calls, you know, the ears to the founding fathers. But he's also kind of not part of that as well. I think this really is brought into relief when he becomes president because during his presidency in 1825, it really shows that the political culture is in transition, that now that the founding fathers, for the most part, are gone. This is the opportunity for the next generation who politely waited <laughs> for them to leave the stage so they can do things the way they want to do it, the way they can carry out the America that they envision, mm. politically speaking. And this is a more democratic America, more hands-on America, a more yeah. rough-and-tumble America. And John Quincy Adams just really didn't know how to play that game. And it became pretty clear pretty early in terms of his administration that he really wasn't equipped for this new politics. Monroe was the era of good feelings, a brief moment of political bliss in this country when the Democratic Republicans were running everything. That quickly changes. And John Quincy Adams, who was surprisingly a Democratic Republican, his father was one of the original Federalists, gets caught up in a very explosive election. It's weird. Now, many similarities there are with the Bush too later on. You know, let's talk through this election first, which was against, among others, Andrew Jackson. It's all about that electoral college, isn't it? 
It is. And it's not just the Electoral College. It's also the way that people understood how that should work before the Electoral College. You had with each of the presidents, with the exception of Adams, because earlier with John Adams, that he carried over Washington's cabinet and he didn't really make his own selections in terms of picking who would be his successor. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it would be the Secretary of State, which this idea began to sort of form afterwards. I mean, of course, you know, you had Jefferson as Secretary of State of Washington, but he didn't become the immediate successor. But once you get into the Jefferson administration, you have, you know, Madison becoming the successor, who was the Secretary of State. And then you have under the Madison administration, you have Monroe. And so there began mm-hmm. to be this idea that whoever would be the Secretary of State would be the successor. Now, John Quincy Adams was the you know, Secretary of State for Monroe. So you would think, well, he should be the successor. But that's not how his contemporaries were looking at it. Mm -hmm. They saw this as that this is a new generation. Those were all founding father presidents. This is a new era. We want it. Our people want it, or our friends, as they would call them. And we're going to go for it. And so right away there, you have the shakeup from what had been going on for the last, you know, quarter century. And so that's one of the shakeups. The other is that before this, you would have a congressional caucus that would decide who was going to be the president for the party. That is breaking down because now you have, I think at this point, 18 of the states are allowing for popular suffrage, basically meaning white male suffrage. So you have now white males of the state, they didn't have to be property owners, deciding who the presidential electors would be. And there were a handful, maybe six states, that still the legislature would decide who the electors would be. So those were changes that were already going on. You know, it wasn't assumed who would be the successor. And then you also had this more democratic dynamic that is going on as you enter into the election of 1824. One of those other themes the broad ideas that's shifting now is that this has become a market economy nation. You know, this is the beginning of that whole mercantile period in America where a lot of the values are changing in the society. People are no longer as religious as they were before. There's a whole other motivation going on in this country. Everybody's realizing, I can make a lot of money in this country. There's a lot of capital opportunity to be had. That will get supercharged as America grows older, but it's really the beginnings of that right now. The Erie Canal is opening in 1825. There's a lot of money floating around these days, and it it has a lot to do with how things are changing politically. Am I right? That's right. There's all kinds of transformations. I mean, we've been talking about the political culture, changes going on there, but you have a transportation transformation and that you have talked about, a transportation revolution in terms of with, and the market revolution that's going on with the, the Erie Canal, but also a communication revolution. Mm-hmm. So that continues, and that is tied in. We talked a little bit about that when we talked about John Adams and his era with, you know, post office and the post roads. Well, that's just, you know, intensified over the decades. And now that you have transportation by the canals, you also have the development of steam. And that is really in terms of the the steamships that's moving. You can move goods, you know, up the river as well as down the river now. And the canals, I mean, the air canal is the most popular and it's just massive and important. But you begin to have canals that are starting to connect people across the United States. And soon afterwards, you're going to have the railroad as well. So it really is a time of transformation, radical transformation. And the politics are part of that as well. John Quincy Adams is elected in a contested election, a controversial one. Explain how that works. It was the first one that was decided by the U.S. House of Representatives. So you have the electors and 
you have to have a majority of electors, just like today. But you had four candidates. And so since you have Adams, Jackson, Henry Clay, Speaker of the House, and Crawford, who are running for president, those with the top three number of electors go to the House of Representatives. Clay had, he was the fourth. So he was left out of this. So you have the top three, and that would be Jackson, Adams, and Crawford. And so at that point, going to the 12th Amendment, it goes to the House of Representatives, and there they will decide who becomes president. And they elect John Quincy Adams. This was still contested in a way that we're very familiar with these days throughout his presidency by Andrew Jackson, right? I mean, he sort of never gives up on it, does he? He doesn't because he felt that he had rightly won and that he had the popular vote, which we always talk about. But at a national level, of course, it really comes down to the Electoral College. But he would argue Mm -hmm. that he also won the popular vote at the state level, which is how we do things, right? Every state is like its own republic, and it has a popular vote, and that decides the presidential electors. So he felt that since he won more electors than anyone else, that also said, you know, basically, I should win. But he didn't have a majority. And so he felt that the election was stolen from him, and and he was livid, and his followers were livid, and he really sort of represented and embodied in some ways this change that was going on that, you know, it's kind of, you know, something that's hard to put your finger on, and these things happen from time to time, and he really exemplified that, whereas Adams really perfectly exemplified what was passing away. Sure. (laughs) In many respects, at this point in his career. And so you could see that this is just this perfect clash, in a sense. And so, yes, it goes to the House of Representatives. And there, of course, you can imagine the lobbying and the horse trading that's going on and the pressure. And that was all happening. And that is what then leads to the controversy that is always associated with 1824. Yeah, or 2020. Right. Lest you think the peaceful transition of power is something that's always been respected. No, Andrew Jackson kind of started it off with uh, protesting on this particular election. Adams' years as president are, as mentioned, largely defined by his domestic concerns. We'll talk about all this. But before we get to that, let's talk about something very fateful in our history, the acquisition of the Florida Peninsula, finally secured by the Adams-Onis Treaty signed in 1819 when Adams was Secretary of State under Monroe. The next big piece of the continent to become American and not European, Louisiana Purchase, 1803, Alaska, the Northwest, the Southwest, all that's to come. How did Americans associate this acquisition or did they with Adams? I think they did in the sense that it just added on to the admiration and respect they had for him as a diplomat. Okay. I think the Adams-Onese Treaty and other activities at the time, but especially this one, I think it really kind of shows how all these contenders for the president in 1824 are all working together during the Monroe administration, during this era of good feelings. And Jackson, he went into, I mean, really the sort of road to the adams onis Treaty is that, you know, Jackson goes into Florida chasing down American Indian tribes that had been harassing settlers and farmers in Georgia. And they thought that there were foreign powers behind this. So Jackson had enough. 
he went into Florida and it created a crisis for the administration, for the Monroe administration. And John Quincy Adams, he supported Jackson in this. And he, mm-hmm. he went to bat for Jackson, even though people in the administration, including the president, were unnerved by what he had done. And John Quincy Adams saw this as an opportunity and said that we should use this as a starting point. And so really, John Quincy Adams was Andrew Jackson's defender in the administration when this happened. It's interesting you say that. My assumption had always been that Jackson, who was the famous military general, he was a real fighter, would have looked down on John Quincy Adams as the diplomat. That's absolutely not true. Not at this time. And so at least for John Quincy Adams, I mean, he's already in Florida. So the diplomat, the secretary of state saw this as an opportunity. Let's use this as the starting point to negotiate Florida. And not only Florida, they also negotiated, you know, the border up in Oregon. And he saw the opportunity and Adams seized it. You know, John Quincy Adams really sort of anticipates a lot of things in uh, the way that Lincoln approached things. I mean, I'm sure your guests down the line will get to this, but it's interesting in this case, when he was elected president, he did consider having Andrew Jackson in his cabinet. And it's just kind of like a similar way where you have, you know, Lincoln kind of brought in his political enemies. Team of rivals, all that. The team of rivals, right. And so John Quincy Adams flirted with this idea, but he didn't follow Mm. through with it. He comes in with an agenda. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking New Deal here. It's called the American System, aimed to promote economic growth and development, policies to improve roads, canals, bridges, all in the spirit of what we were just saying, that this is a changing land. There's new systems, lots of new demands for states to really develop things. And he sees a role for the federal government in all of this, Mm -hmm. all paid for with protective tariffs to support industry. In July of 1828, Adams breaks ground north of Georgetown for the C&O Canal. Up to this point, the Potomac River was the transit for moving materials, but that river is so fickle, Adams wants to see the canal come into the nation's capital, and it will run parallel by being fed with the water. I mean, this is a big project. It reflects his ambition for the country as a whole. It does remind you of what you've heard recently with the Infrastructure Act. You know, there are these phases of American politics that, you know, shift from foreign to domestic and back and forth. This is one of these periods when he's going to be the guy that does this. But he's not supported very well, is he? He isn't. And this goes back to with the election of 1824 and how it took place. So, When he was elected by the House of Representatives, there was this idea put out there, whispers perhaps at first, but then louder voices much later, that there had been a corrupt bargain with Henry Clay, that basically Henry Clay said, hey, if you make me Secretary of State, of course, again, this idea, then I would be the successor Mm -hmm. to the presidency. If you make me Secretary of State, I will support you. So I don't believe that happened. And the reason is because Henry Clay did not support Jackson and he did not support Mm -hmm. Cross. And even though he had issues with Adams going all the way back when they both served on the commission with the Treaty of Ghent, that Henry Clay knew that Adams would support his American system. And so Mm -hmm. really, Adams kind of carried the torch of Clay's American system, which involved, you know, the national bank tariffs and internal improvements. So there's two things going on. There's politics going on. But there's also certain principles of federalism, which, again, this is this perennial issue in American Mm -hmm. politics. So on the one hand, Adams did not have support for these internal improvements because basically he was being sabotaged every step of the way by Congress Mm -hmm. because the Jacksonians in Congress were already looking toward 1828. 
So like you had alluded to a little bit earlier, that the election of 1828 started in March <laughs> or earlier, 1825. And so they were basically anytime Adams wanted to do something in terms of the American system, it was being basically sabotaged. It just speaks to the importance of strong election. When you're brought in, when the majority of electors, let alone, you know, a large popular vote, I'm thinking Ronald Reagan, any kind of the modern presidency like that, that inoculates you for a long time from that sword sharpening effort that is inevitable, you know, coming into an election. If you don't get that strong outpouring of good faith from the people, then they go right to work right away. That's what happens to Quincy Adams, right? That's right. Since he was elected in the House and he didn't have the popular vote and he didn't have the most of the electoral votes, even though there wasn't a majority, obviously, so it went to the House. They felt like, who is this guy that he can, you know, propose, you know, all these internal improvements, propose a naval academy, propose, you know, observatories, propose all these things. He doesn't have this sort of mandate. So to your point, mm -hmm. and so there was that people didn't feel like he had that mandate. So he should behave accordingly, be a little bit <laughs> more humble in his approach to policy. There was the politics that the election of 1828 started in 18. 25. And then there was this the principles of federalism and what is it that the federal government can spend money on? Yeah. Because there were some internal improvements. You had to kind of like tie it into that it was like a local project. This way you can get a congressman on board. But it was tough. And there was this idea that it was not the prerogative of the federal government to spend money on these types of uh, projects. And you said before that John Quincy Adams was uniquely ill-equipped for the role of playing these kinds of politics. Is this what you were referring to? Yeah, because he was unwilling to make deals. It's one of these things. We always talk about people who are like experienced for the presidency. Mm -hmm. And it really is sort of an interesting and mysterious question about how leadership works. Because you know, he had all this experience and he would have, you know, been like the most experienced, but he did not know how to do politics in 1825. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if he would have knew how to do politics earlier. He just wasn't that kind of guy. So now when you have the democratization of American politics, there were opportunities for him. So some of his friends would say, hey, you know, why don't you go talk to, you know, the folks in Pennsylvania, the German speakers, you're fluent in German. Go speak to them. Mm -hmm. No, because that was, you know, kind of pandering and it, he just could not do that. It's like he was expecting the name to do a lot for him, but also he was still in his father's tradition, which is kind of how everybody was operating back then up until this particular presidency. And certainly afterwards with Jackson, it becomes a much more modern sensibility of street fighting. <laughs> and he saw like the wisdom of these things in his mind. This is like this vision, like who wouldn't want to strengthen America by having it better connected, you know, to develop the economy, to develop communications? Who wouldn't want that? And so it was just he just couldn't understand why people would be opposed to these ideas to strengthen America culturally. Internally. Internally. Absolutely. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit... I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. And so nothing of his American system works out. Is there nothing we can point to that says, oh, well, that's John Adams? No, they did expand the national road. That did happen. And some of the things later happen, like the Smithsonian, for instance, is a a good example. It fulfilled a vision of his, but again, it was privately funded and it wasn't Mm. through the the government. And it takes until the, I don't know, 1990s before the CNO Canal is cleaned up and it becomes a park. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it is this interesting question about how much the government pay for and where are the limits? And and we've kind of in some ways have gotten past this, kind of. We're a quarter century out. At this point in American history, we're a quarter century out from things really heating up in the 1850s when the seeds of dissent are already sprouting. But much of a Adams's uh, presidential agenda is seen to favor the North and all that which industrialization requires to function. Meanwhile, the agrarian South begins to fight back, clinging to that way of life which enables their economy to function, the institution of slavery. We see the power of the South here as embedded in the Constitution, don't we? The Congress is controlled by a minority of white America because they can count the enslaved people as population. Even while they can't obviously vote, this is what holds Adams' programs back in many ways. It does. And I think he really begins to feel this and notice this. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that, you know, he could just scrape by winning the presidency when you have the western part of the United States and the southern part of the United States. I mean, in terms of population, it's nowhere near, of course, the mid-Atlantic and New England. And you're starting to really see how, you know, the three-fifths clause really kind Mm -hmm. of had aided the South. And so the South begins to see with the American system proposals that really there is this sort of reckoning that's going to happen in terms of the development of the industrial North and how this is going to impact the South. So you really begin to see those seeds 
planted for what is to come. So to get to 1828, when you had the tariff proposal, this is where well, you can read it and read it and it, it, you can see how muddled it is. Mm-hmm. And it starts off as a way to kind of like box Adams in and kind of because they figured it's going to be rejected and whatnot. And it actually backfires for what are now being called the Democrats uh, versus the National Republicans. And, but it really backfires for them. And it ends up this proposal, this bill that had went forth that was never supposed to pass, actually ends up passing. And the South, with Calhoun as its uh, speaker, they just go ballistic with this because here they can see that this is where the North is going to dominate the South in terms of, you know, they're going to have this protection, whereas cotton and slaves at this time are actually, the price is at as a low point. So mm. what the South has in terms of its assets are at a low point, so they're not going to get a lot for the cotton, yet they're going to have to pay more for the protected goods. And so this totally backfires. But this is where you see then Calhoun saying that, you know, the South isn't going to take it. South Carolina is not going to take it. And again, they start to begin to threaten nullification, which we saw, you know, when we talked about John Adams with the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, you know, saying that if a state doesn't support a federal law, it can nullify that. And you see mm-hmm. this being utilized again at toward the end. Ironically, they're going to try to do it under Jackson, under their man Jackson. Right. He's the one that has to deal with it. Right. <laughs> and your next guest will surely get into this, where you see Jackson is the unionist. And this is where Calhoun, who was a national Republican, you know, early on, he begins to, over the years and over the decades, he becomes like the face of uh, states' rights and later secession. As ugly as it is, you can understand at least the logical idea of this, that here was a country that 50 years before had seceded, basically, from the British Empire and fought a war over this. And what were they seceding over? Fair representation and taxation ideas. And so here we have the South sort of framing themselves in the same role. You know, here we are just trying to do our best out here, growing our crops like we always did. And you're coming at us with these new ideas of how we're supposed to pay a lot of money to take care of this. These are the seeds that are planted down the road for secession with the small caveat as it all depends on slavery. There's the heart of the matter. But anyway, after his presidency, John Quincy Adams proves to be a staunch opponent of slavery and plays a significant role in the abolitionist movement. This is interesting. He's actually the lawyer who takes the case of the Amistad, the ship of enslaved Africans who revolted against their captors. They'd been, Spielberg made a big movie about this. Adams will argue their case in the Supreme Court and he wins. They go home to Africa. That's John Quincy Adams right there. Good man, smart man, great lawyer. There's a lot more about his post-presidential years that we won't have time to talk about, but suffice to say that so much that is baked into the American pie at this time comes out later as the Civil War. And you see it all sort of happening under Adams' administration. It is interesting because it really is this transitional period. So it's kind of like the closing of the founding period, right? And we talked about the death of his father in Jefferson is also around this Mm. time. So you have like the closing of that period. And really, you have the beginning of the period that is going to take you through the Civil War. And you see the seeds, of course, are in his administration. But then you see it when he's a congressman. And again, anticipating Lincoln and many of Lincoln's arguments, he would be like, okay, even though I'm opposed to slavery, it can be where it is because that's the Constitution protects it, but you can't expand slavery, which is, of course, Lincoln's argument. But Adams begins to see more clearly that slavery is a problem everywhere. 
with every single issue that comes up, you can point to slavery, whether it's annexation, Indian removal. And you have a John Quincy Adams who sees the, the way the world is moving, you know, towards technology and industrialization. In many ways, that is going to be at the heart of the matter with the Civil War. And it's the conflict that's the tension in America at this time that, you know, we could have gone another way and everybody, if everybody sort of followed along, then we'd have a different story, but uh, we didn't. So here we are. And, you know, I'm kicking myself because I think the beginning of this podcast really was July 4th, 1826, which is the death of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams on the same day, which is amazing. And that actually is at right at the beginning of John Adams' uh, administration. What an amazing, uncanny event. So really the close of that whole founding father period and then the beginning of this period, which the son of one of those guys is not ready for. <laughs> That's right. And, and it just gets wild. I mean, it's almost like, you know, I always kind of imagine this next generation, you know, they've heard all the stories about the founding fathers. They grew up hearing about the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence and all this, and they just can't wait to be able to carry on their vision of America. But they see things differently and yeah. they politely wait and then yeah. when all of a sudden it, it happens, it's just like all hell breaks loose. And you see this with the election of 1824 and then especially with 1828 because it just gets nasty. Yeah. From time to time, it would flare up like this. But I always felt like, wow, 1828 didn't really get, I mean, with Lincoln, it got bad too. But I think we've also entered another era where it had been getting pretty bad. Well, the stakes are getting higher. You know, right. the stakes are higher. I really do believe that we don't give that enough credit, that money-driven desires begin to operate on what becomes the middle class. It's not there yet, but that's really what's happening as you're growing a middle class. Therefore, there's an upward mobility available. And once you change that society in such a fundamental way, it's a can of worms. Boy, everything starts to change. That's right. And I, you see this in the with the election of 1828. Now that you have more and more Americans participating and able to mm -hmm. participate in the vote, there begins to be this sort of expression of angst toward the political class, elitists, and mm -hmm. they are being dismissed. And so, you know, Jackson capitalizes on this and say, hey, I'm a soldier like you. I'm a farmer like you. And that John Quincy Adams, look at him. He's just an elitist professor. Sure. And, you know, John Quincy Adams, he couldn't really help himself. He would say and do things that would kind of prove what Jackson was saying to be true to Jackson's followers. So, you know, people don't like being dismissed. And there are a lot of people at this time that felt like they were being dismissed. And this comes out in 1828. But they get a voice because the Democratic Party, the Jacksonians are really good at this. And that yeah. is putting together a political organization that can really harness this feeling. It can organize this feeling. It can express this feeling. And it gets to a point where it is a moving train. There's a story where John Quincy Adams is, is in a town and he's trying to get some sleep and he can't because there's a Jackson rally going outside. <laughs> and that wasn't planned. It wasn't meant to like, you know, to harass Adams, but they were ubiquitous and it yeah. just picked up a momentum that was pretty incredible. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the summation points of this podcast is really you want to find where everything we're going through now starts 
It's in this period of time. It's Adams to Jackson. And it's very direct. I mean, to the point, of course, that Trump famously put a portrait of Jackson over the mantelpiece. So we'll talk about that in the next episode. But you can even find it here, basically, in John Quincy Adams. It is interesting when you make these sort of like the more things change, the more they remain the same type of Mm. thing. That it's with John Quincy Adams, there's also the first time that you have Russia's brought into the campaign as... And all these like, you know, salacious, you know, sort of activities that are kind of, you know, of course, they're not they're not true. And they're brought into the campaign to try to to taint a candidate. And so the 1828 election and again, your next guest will probably also get into this. It just it is mean spirited. It is the way that spouses were attacked and the moral character of folks. I think it looked kind of familiar to us, but it was pretty new to them and shocking. So John Quincy Adams leaves the presidency to Andrew Jackson in 1829, but it's a year or so later that he is elected to the House of Representatives from Massachusetts, only ex-president to serve in the House. And he is there until 1848 when he actually collapses from a stroke on the House floor while delivering a speech. And as I understand, dies in the building two days later, February 23rd, 1848. Amazing story. Incredible post-presidency, doesn't he have? Yeah. And this is really, I think he becomes the man, the public figure that he always imagined himself yeah. to be. And he gets the accolades that were always so elusive during his earlier political life. But it is interesting because when his neighbors encourage him to run for Congress, he was thrilled because he was bored at home and yeah. he wanted to get back into the fight. But he says, I'll do it on uh, two conditions. One, they will always vote you know, my conscience. And then two, I will not solicit votes. So there's again... <laughs> You know, I will not get in into the dirt with this, but they agree to this. They elect him nine times and he really finds his voice. And this is where he really gets identified with the anti-slavery movement. So Mm. he wasn't an abolitionist because he felt that the abolitionists could be just as dangerous as the secessionists in terms almost that they would rather see their cause succeed than the Union. And so John Quincy Adams was all about the Union, the United States of America surviving, being strong. He did not support slavery as an institution he was appalled by, but he saw that it was this difficult thing to maneuver around. He recognized the reality of this, and he saw that the Constitution protected it, but he did not want to see it expand. But what ended Mm. up happening when he was in Congress, the Congress tries to shut down the debate about slavery in the form of petitions that would come from the abolitionists. And so it wasn't that John Quincy Adams was picking up the abolitionists' cause. What it was was that he saw this as a violation of the First Amendment of the freedom of speech and the right to petition. And so he could champion that. And so by doing that, though, he became a champion for the abolitionists and he became a threat to those in Congress who were pro-slavery. And he was quite adroit in his way of making arguments where he could just box someone into a corner and they would just have to uh, surrender the argument. I mean, he was very good with this. You know, first to start with the right to petition and freedom of speech, you know, because he's like, oh, wait a minute, they're trying to silence. The slave power is trying to silence Mm. Americans on this issue. And then he begins to see that slavery is a problem at every single point. And it is a threat to the union at every single point. And it becomes his cause. And he becomes celebrated for it. 
and he loved it. I imagine he was the mentor for quite a bit of the next generation who really carry on this torch. It's really kind of interesting because, as I had mentioned a couple of times, he anticipates Lincoln's own view of slavery and the Union and the Constitution. And it's interesting that when he uh, was laying there unconscious in, I think it was in the Speaker's room, actually in the House mm-hmm. of Representatives, a young freshman uh, representative, Abraham Lincoln, was able to look upon John Quincy Adams. And it's sort of Lincoln was a Whig, and that was the direction that John Quincy Adams was going as well. It's, but the difference with John Quincy Adams is kind of, it's really interesting because like his dad, he was his own man. So while he was, you know, considered a national Republican and a Democratic Republican, he was all these things. But even when he was the representative while Jackson was president, his party could never really quite count on him to vote a certain way because they never really knew because there were some policies where he actually voted in support of Andrew Jackson, despite despising the man. But he knew he felt it was the right policy. So he voted his conscience, not uh, the party. He was such a foreign policy expert. I mean, so many years of diplomacy. What did he accomplish in this regard in the presidency? Well, a lot of the major issues that had been hanging around for a while, especially with borders, had been taken care of or mostly resolved. When he was Secretary of State, whether it was the border with Florida, the border in the Oregon Territory, because you're dealing with the Spanish on the one side, you're dealing with Russians on the Pacific. And so they were able to take care of also trade issues with Britain. And so a lot of these were taken care of, and it did not leave that much in terms of these issues for his Secretary of State, Henry Clay. However, what was going on at this time were the independence movements in Latin America, and they had become republics by this time. And Henry Clay, while in the House of Representatives, was a champion of the Latin American independence movements, and he supported these republics, felt that the United States should support the republics, especially because of the Monroe Doctrine, which, of course, Adams shaped. And so when Adams was president and Henry Clay was secretary of state, there was this opportunity to work with the Latin American republics. And so there was going to be a conference in Panama that Henry Clay felt that the Americans should participate in. They had been invited to participate in. And so going back to these problems in the Senate and the sabotage that was going on, the politics, also with the slavery issue, they ended up asking the House of Representatives to fund two delegates to go to Panama to participate in this conference. The House of Representatives refused to fund the delegates, and they were putting obstacles in the way. One, they wanted to sabotage the uh, foreign policy, but also there was this deeper, darker issue, and that is they were concerned that if there were American delegates in this assembly or conference for the Americas that they may put out a resolution regarding there should not be any slavery in the Western Hemisphere. So they were worried about that. Secondly, they thought it would not be a good look to have American delegates sitting next to and working with delegates from Haiti who, you know, with the revolt that had happened there during the 1790s. And, you know, uh, Haiti was the second republic in the Western Hemisphere. So they were really worried about this. And, of course, we know how slavery is so embedded in the South. But also at this time in 1830s, in 1820s too, you had slave revolts, which had also put the South on edge in addition to their economic interests and whatnot. 
the Maverick. There's always been a big role for them in American politics. Yeah, and yeah, and he definitely was a Maverick. Amazing story. Thank you, sir. Professor Christopher Young is at the Indiana University Northwest. His published works are a long list and eclectic subjects covering things like Mary Kay Goddard and Benjamin Rush, not to mention the class of cultures during the disco demolition night in Chicago in 1979. Thank you very much, sir. I hope to see you again sometime soon. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies, to powerful political movements, to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.